data tyrants. We do not demand everything be measured. If people say that the thing that I'm working on is impossible to measure, that to me just cannot be true. You're doing something for some outcome, something tangible in the world. It must be possible to measure that in some way. That does not mean it's easy to measure or it's cheap to measure. Hello, I'm Alex Bolfres. It's my pleasure to welcome you to FP21 Minutes, a podcast dedicated to evidence and integrity in foreign policy. We bring you conversations between practitioners and researchers about how American foreign policy is made and how it can be made better. This week, we continue with part two of the conversation between Thomas Scher and Dan Spikajny about their article recently published by War on the Rocks under the title, Foreign Policy Should Be Evidence-Based. You'll find the link in the show notes. Their conversation starts with Dan reading a paragraph from the article, after which Thomas and Dan talk about whether the things we seek to achieve in American foreign policy can be measured in a meaningful way. The second part of their conversation is about the role of ethics in evidence-based foreign policy. After their conversation, I'll editorialize a little bit about the results of a survey about what the makers of American foreign policy find useful in academic scholarship and what they emphatically do not. One of the biggest misconceptions about evidence-based foreign policy is that science should provide the quote-unquote right answers to the problems we face. It will not. It cannot. Anyone who tells you otherwise is trying to sell you something. Instead, the goal of evidence-based foreign policy is to continually strive for better informed answers. That's the point here, Thomas. What we're trying to ask of this process is that we continually learn and we push ourselves to evaluate the quality of the, the, the data or the evidence, the, the reasoning behind the logic we used, and learn from it and push ourselves to learn. Science is intended, it's built to be an additive process an iterative process where you continually learn. That learning mechanism is often missing from the policy process. That brings me to my brief stint in government where I was working in their learning and research office where we have lots of lesson learned reports saying on the shelf, but being able to pull in and organize that information when you need is a significant challenge. Another response that we got to our blog post. So to take a tweet, someone responded, I think it's a mistake to think we have anything like accurate metrics on many of the issues we would expect these data-driven foreign service officers to make decisions about. So there's this question here about, sure, evidence is great, data is great, but the things that we're dealing with in the foreign policy community are very hard to measure, impossible to measure even. Dan, what would you say to that? Of course it's hard to measure, but what's the alternative? What's the status quo that we're measuring evidence or metrics against. Today, we're still using evidence, but we're just not talking about it as evidence and we're not evaluating the quality of that evidence. We sneak the evidence into our arguments. We hide the evidence in order to make our claims that the United States should intervene here or we should create a peace process here or we need to lead with our military rather than our diplomacy here. We still are using claims within these mental models it's really hard to get great metrics that are going to tell you what you need to know. That's always going to be true. Just because it's hard doesn't mean that there's a better alternative out there. 
if you think there's something magical, and perhaps there is, and there's really good research, which I've really tried to spend time on out there about the magic of the human brain and of somebody's gut instincts. So perhaps the status quo is you just have to trust that our evidence-based processes can't compete with the human brain yet. You and I are not data tyrants. We do not demand everything be measured. If people say that the thing that I'm working on is impossible to measure, that to me just cannot be true. You're doing something for some outcome, something tangible in the world. It must be possible to measure that in some way. Now, that does not mean it's easy to measure or it's cheap to measure. It could be too time consuming. I can see some other reasons why some idealized metric or data is not feasible. The argument being made here is not that what I'm doing is impossible to measure. It's just hard to have accurate metrics. And we don't have these for a lot of things. And there is going to be some cost involved and some questions about, is it worth it? Oftentimes, we we can't get at the real thing we want to measure. And so we have to use some kind of shorthand for it. Instead of data on how many children are learning how to read, that's hard to get. But we have data on how many schools are built, outputs versus outcomes. That initial measurement isn't quite what we want. It's not as accurate, not as precise. In a lot of cases, that's still okay, as long as we're well aware of the limitations and that we're very careful about the the conclusions that we reach based on the data that is available. We in academia invest a great deal of time into trying to find good measures for things are trained and discuss endlessly ways of finding reasonable measurements, whether they be quantified as data, people usually associate data with some kind of numbers, or it be more qualitative storytelling. There's so many different ways to try to understand the world around us. What we're calling for is that some more of that expertise should be brought into the bureaucracy. For many of these things, we might not have very accurate metrics now, but that's largely due to the culture and the processes that we're currently stuck in. We have a vision of a number of other changes that would lead to the available metrics expanding or or being a bit larger. Is that your sense as well? That's such an important point, Thomas. If we don't have these metrics, which are really vital for foreign policy, then let's pay for them. Let's hire researchers, go out into the world and study violent deaths or attempts to pacify civil conflict or different tools that really work to expand access for American businesses. What really is the effect of sanctions versus naming and shaming. Let's go get that evidence. Let's set our mind to it as an institution and say, yeah, we don't have all the answers, but let's go get them. There's a bit of a chicken and egg here where there isn't a supply of data. So how can we have any demand for it? Once you build the demand through demanding more evidence in the decision-making process, that's going to lead to the creation of supply. When I talk with a lot of high-level policymakers informally when I was working at the Department of State and now from the outside, I get a sense that there's some turfsmanship here. I'm the person in charge. I know what's best. And if you try to come at me with a different tool or a different method that could make me seem like an old-timer or anachronistic, That's a real threat to my job security. And I I get that. It's incumbent upon us who are advocating for reform to argue convincingly to the power structure that these tools are going to help you. They're not going to threaten your ability to conduct politics. They're not going to threaten 
the, the primacy of those with the most experience to continue to lead our institutions, they're going to support our policymakers in achieving their objectives. The, the point of, of FP21 is not to overthrow the system. It's to make the system a little bit better. I feel like sometimes people imagine we envision a world where you enter your data disk in a computer and it spits out the decision and that there's going to be no place for domestic considerations or experience working in foreign policy or all these other factors. And that is not at all what we're advocating for, that lovely dystopian world. Uh, Yes, political considerations will still be a factor. And we still want uh, foreign policy decision makers with a lot of experience to draw upon and to use that to also evaluate and weigh the evidence that should hopefully in our world be brought to them. We see this in some of the feedback we received. People talk about not just the politics that can't be pulled out of policymaking, but also the ethical considerations, the identity considerations, the emotional considerations, the, the contextual considerations. Evidence can't distinguish right from wrong. Therefore, we should not have an evidence-based foreign policy. Is, is that right? Evidence is not going to tell you what's right or wrong. If you set good goals, evidence will help you achieve that. If you set bad goals, evidence will help you achieve that. Evidence plays an important role in identifying unexpected outcomes around a policy. One of the favorite examples is a reconciliation program in Sierra Leone, where they were able to embed an experiment in the program. And they found good proof that the reconciliation program was accomplishing its goals, but it was also having the side effect of sparking PTSD in some of the participants. If we bring this back to the question of good or bad, that piece of evidence let decision makers know that this policy, which largely led to what many would say is a good, also had the side effect, which was for them to consider in how to expand the policy or whether the policy needed to be changed or tweaks need to be made to it. There is a role in evidence here to help understand outcomes, which then the decision maker can judge as good and bad and decide how to move forward on. People are right to distrust new ideas like this. They're right to take these ideas to a logical extreme sometimes and say, okay, if you start trying to quantify everything around me in diplomacy, what's next? Are you going to take away my ability to judge right from wrong? I don't think that point is lost on either of us, but that's just not what we're arguing for, that there needs to be a healthy balance between what do we really think works and what are we really observing is happening as a result of our policy interventions? And what does that information do for our very human judgments of right and wrong and the trade-offs that we have to make? We're not trying to create a machine-driven foreign policy. My guess is a lot of the, the policies that people see as having the worst outcomes are a result of a lack of evidence or a lack of knowledge about what an outcome of a policy would be. Within the research community, there's this mechanism for making sure that things are done in an ethical way with some guidance from the the U.S. government, specifically health and human services. And with this guidance, some group of your peers looks at every research program to decide if it's ethical. The Institutional Review Board process, or IRB, was also part of my, my past work in government of being the IRB enforcer. It made me a friend to nobody. Even within that framework, I was sometimes alarmed 
at the projects that didn't need any kind of ethical review and would push coworkers that even if a project doesn't follow the threshold of you have to follow all these rules, you should still think hard about the ethics and write out possible concerns. And here's what we're going to do to mitigate them, both as good practice and to be able to look back at, to keep evaluating as we go and to try to address those issues as they arise. There's sometimes this negative attitude within academia towards this ethics review stage. But I think what it boils down to is if you feel a little bit uncomfortable about evidence-based foreign policymaking, not emphasizing ethics enough, join us. Let's create some more opportunities for ethical reviews of our policy framework to understand how our research and our policies are really going to impact other people and then fall back on our very human ability to judge right or wrong and and to weigh sometimes difficult choices. Whose equities deserve more attention in this policy environment? Data is never going to solve that question for you. Part of an evidence-based policy process is to put mechanisms in place that force us to ask the right questions. Those are about ethics. Those are about politics. Those are about context. Those are about the quality of the data or the quality of the evidence, the quality of the research that underlies the claims you make. To the skeptics out there, those are the same questions that we have about the existing policy process. We've really tried to put some intellectual energy into trying to make something better. So, So we're with you. There's a risk of saying ethics exists off here in one corner and science exists off here in another corner, and the two are opposite or mutually exclusive. I don't believe that's the case. On the one hand, good science asks you to be really clear about and and define what your ethics really look like. Are your ethics about making sure the fewest people possible die? We can measure that, actually. Is it about doing as little harm as possible? We can measure that. Is it about doing the most good possible? How many people do we educate, even if maybe there's some harm in the way we spend our money or make trade-offs or whatever? When one is asked to be a little bit more clear about what they're trying to achieve and what their ethics look like in practice, it brings science and, and ethics closer together. I hope you've enjoyed that behind-the-scenes look at the kind of conversations that we're having at FP21. This week's newsletter has a lot of fantastic material and includes a link to an article that reports the results of a survey on the views of foreign policymakers about the usefulness of academic research in their work. The title is, Does Social Science Inform Foreign Policy? Evidence from a Survey of U.S. National Security, Trade, and Development Officials. It was written by Paul Avey and several co-authors and published by International Studies Quarterly. What's great about this work is that it's both an update and an expansion of an earlier similar survey that was largely focused on the national security community. In the article, they write... There remains a sizable gap between what policymakers want and what scholars provide, but it is not as large as has often been claimed, at least not in all issue areas of international relations. 
Policy officials are broadly responsive to the views of academic experts and willing to engage with academic work. To a lesser extent, they are also receptive to various social scientific methods, including quantitative methods. This is an interesting change from the last time the survey was run, where quantitative methods were generally not viewed as useful by the surveyed policymakers. The article also reports on differences in what kind of academic scholarship is useful to policymakers depending on the issue areas that they work in. But a quote from the article again, Security practitioners use social science ideas and data less frequently than their colleagues who work on trade and development, are less likely to think that academic work applies directly to specific components of their work, are less likely to value academic research, are less likely to find mathematical approaches useful, and are more likely to find area studies, ethnographic research, and historical approaches to be more helpful in their work. This is the piece that jumped out at me as it did the last time the survey was run. This interest in case studies and historical approaches, I think, carries real dangers with it. First, I have to emphasize to my academic friends that I think case studies are great. They are the core of a lot of my work. But what I worry about when you spend time with academic historians, they are among the scholars least likely to want to extrapolate their work into neatly packaged current lessons. They're often quite cautious and humble in the claims they make. Many of them would be alarmed that policymakers think that reading their work can be applied in a straightforward way to policy without effort, dedicated to making sure that the historical period or event that's being examined shares the relevant features with the challenges that we have today. In some of the less approachable work in political science, that is exactly the problem that people are trying to solve. What are some of the generalizable, universal features about international politics that we think we can show persist in similar form across space and time? It's entirely possible that the respondents to the surveys weren't really thinking of those cautious and responsible academic historians, but rather writers of popular history who often already have an eye on the contemporary events they want to illuminate with their reading of history. That's all fine and good, and I'm waiting for the next Robert Caro book on Johnson just as much as everyone else's. But that doesn't mean that the key to presidential success is to be found in close personal relationships with the Senate. What makes a story about the past compelling and interesting is exactly its ability to hijack our emotions and psychology our mental desires for certainty, our judgment about right and wrong. So if we are enjoying reading a historical case study, it's probably because we've turned our analytical mind off at its best. In science, the equations and the models and the diagrams are an effort against all odds to assert our analytical capability against these kinds of narrative seductions. That's all we thought you might want to hear this week. If it wasn't, you can file a complaint at podcast at fp21.org. Encouraging comments and ideas for future episodes are, of course, welcome, too. The podcast is brought to you by FP21, a nonprofit dedicated to the promotion of evidence and integrity in American foreign policy. You can find out more about the organization, how to get involved, and subscribe to our newsletter on our website, at fp21.org. We tweet at fp21.org. 
Special thanks to our intern, Emma Jobson, and to Ronan McDermott for composing our theme music. Thank you.